If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to the book of Ephesians. We're in the fifth chapter. The book of the of Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Just going to pick on one verse here this morning. We've been working on the first few verses of this chapter. Let's just remind you of those as we begin in verse 1. Let's read together. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for it, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we begin this morning, open our hearts to the glories of your word. Feed us, Father, from manna from heaven. Grow us. Encourage us. Man, we need encouragement in this world at this time. Help us to know your promises. Help us to long for heaven. Help us, Father, to share the love and mercy you've shared with us, with those around us. Give us a spirit of encouragement and strength. Give us a, a spirit of triumph. Let us not fear, Father, for every promise that you've given us will come true. Father, go with me this morning and go over my simple words. Speak directly to your people through the power and the work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. As we begin this morning in this passage of scripture it's um, it's been good to this point we had this high exalted part that says that we're to be imitators of God as children of God and beloved children of his and walk in love and then it gives us the example of that love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God and we learn in that passage that to know love the world doesn't know love because they don't know God and to know God and to know love, you've got to look at the cross. And that's where that love begins, isn't it? Through what Jesus had done. And we defined a sacrifice as that which is not required of us like a tithe, but was an offering. And everything that we give is true love, right? It's something over than what's required, and that is love. And then we saw these passages, these decidedly negative passages about sexual immorality and our behavior, right? We can't do that. As believers in Christ, we can't even have this type of sin named among us because it's not proper, as, as Paul says there in verse 3, among the saints. And that's a glorious statement of God's grace is that we're saints, that we were chosen before the foundations of the world. In Christ, God saved us, and there was no way we were not going to be saved. There's no way we're not going to be saints, beloved. Listen, let that glow kind of shine over you this morning. In all your difficulties this week, 
and your coughs and the change from cold to hot and the putting up with everybody at work and the dealing with everything you have to deal with and the bills and the, oh, I don't know, you guys get those uh, robo calls all the time. That's just something that I have pleasure with because I play with them all the time. But nevertheless, all those things that go on uh, don't pale in comparison to what God has told you here in this little passage is that you are saints. And that word saint is hagios in the Greek. It means you're holy. God has set you apart. And he's going to sanctify, set you apart in the blood of Jesus Christ. And it was before the foundations of the world that he elected you in love and mercy. And he's going to bring you, you may feel like you're doddering way behind. And indeed, you may need to speed it up. But he's going to bring you along in your salvation. He's going to sanctify you. And scripture tells us in the 18th verse of the first chapter that you become the glorious inheritance of Jesus Christ. Is that, is that beautiful? All of Christ's work here, he was given a gift. And beloved, that gift is you. And he will set you apart. He will make you holy. There's some work on a part that we've got to play while we're here, and that's where we work to. We put away the filthiness and the foolish chalk there and crude joking, verse 4. Those things are out of place, and we become thankful. We understand what God's done in making us saints and in bringing us to sanctification, and we should be thankful. For you may be assured of this, that everyone who is moral and pure, and that impure there is just the opposite of this, the word hagios or holy or saintly uh, there in verse 3, or those who are covetous, and that means idolaters, they don't have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. And then we get to verse 6, which is what we want to work on today. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Again, just the opposite of who we are. We are sons of obedience, sons and daughters of obedience, and we are in the kingdom of God. Do you see the opposites that run through this passage? And those who are practicing these things, who are not the saints, the lost, they're the sons of disobedience and they're the ones that God's wrath is falling on. They are not in the kingdom of God. So to help us in our Christian walk this morning, I've named this defeating deception because that's what he's talking about there. Let no one deceive you with vain or empty words. So my pointed question this morning is, what is the definition of wisdom? What is the definition of wisdom? Because I think in defining this and understanding wisdom, we can defeat any deception that may come our way in this world. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to be discerning? Are we called to be those things as Christians? You need to know what wisdom is. And very simply put, I say this, we talk a lot about this on Wednesday nights. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge and re, uh, to reality in such a way that it brings you, makes you flourish and glorifies God. Let me say that again. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge to reality in such a way that it brings you human flourishing and glorifies the God of heaven. Okay? That's what wisdom is. That's the definition of wisdom because there's a lot of people with a lot of knowledge that don't flourish and don't glorify God. Ultimately, wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The Bible tells us that. I don't know if I didn't look it up this week. I should have done that because there are infinite amount of scriptures, I think, in the Holy Scripture that point to this truth. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And all of the book of Proverbs juxtaposes the fool against the wise person. The wise person is the one who knows and wants to learn God's precepts and concepts. And the fool, it's not the intellectual fool. It's not talking about intellectual capacity. The fool is the one that says in his heart, no to God. And that's kind of the context of Scripture. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom. Humility comes before honor. Now, humility is knowing that we need to know God, right? That we understand who we are so that we can receive the wisdom and fear of the Lord. Job says it this way in 28.28, and he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So the Bible starts to define wisdom or someone who is wise who has the ability to turn away from evil. And that's what understanding is. That's what life is. Psalms 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. (laughs) Starting to become a, a familiar refrain, isn't it? All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6, see... I have taught you the statutes and rules as the Lord my God has commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding. And that will be in the sight of all peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So not only does this wisdom grow, it grows into understanding that other people can realize that we are a great nation. The church, God's people, is that great nation. Indeed, our nation, the United States, is much different from the way that it used to be in that capacity, right? But perhaps this passage in Ecclesiastes brings it and rounds it all down to where I want to head this morning. In Ecclesiastes 12, these are going to be familiar words to any Bible reader. Verses 13 and 14, he says this, the writer Solomon, the end of the matter, after all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it's good or whether it's evil. So wisdom begins in the fear of the Lord, begins in the knowledge of the Lord, and it begins As you understand who God is, you understand who you are. I said that in the opening this morning about our bulletin, but that is the gospel. Once God is revealed to us, we understand who we are. We see him as holy and righteous, and we know that we're not. And that allows us to begin to humble ourselves and to see our need in the gospel for a Jesus who's died for us. So that's where wisdom is. It's there it is, my brother, wisdom. Wisdom is truth. And all truth is all that accords with the mind, will, character, and glory of God. Let me say that again. Wisdom is truth, and truth is all that accords with the mind, will, character, and glory of God. Why would man ever do anything outside of that? Why would they do that? Why would man question so great and powerful of God? Well, the apostle lays down this verse in Ephesians 5, 6, and he begins to tell us that. Let's read it one more time. He says, 
Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And these things, that's revered, he's referring to what came before there in verses 3 through 5, speaks to a man's behaviors and actions, and your behavior and your actions ultimately point to your level of understanding about who God is. All right? If you understand who God is, you're not going to go out and be sexually immoral and immoral because you know the judgment from God on those things. He's very pointed with those words. So it points to what all of Scripture wants us to see and what the context is. It matters how we act before God. And they're largely, the Scriptures are largely concerned with this context and this one thing. The whole context of Scripture is concerned with our understanding of God and the resultant behavior we perform before God. So why is our behavior and our conduct important? Well, I'm going to pull a couple of quotes from Lloyd-Jones' sermon on this passage. Uh, but there's three things that I want to list for you this morning, and they weave in and out of his quotes. Our, number one, our conduct is important because it affects our relationship to God. Our conduct is important because it affects our relationship with God. Now, I would say that works for saved persons as well as lost persons, but Paul is focusing on saved persons this morning, not just because it affects our own life, because when we act the way that God wants us to, something takes place. What's that called? Human flourishing. Every one of God's laws and precepts are set forth for man so that man would know how God made him and how he can flourish before God. So that's number one. Our conduct is important because it affects, affects our relationship to God. Number two is the passage gives man only two possibilities in regard to a relationship with God. I pointed that out briefly uh, a moment ago. This passage in three through six points out that there's only two possibilities in regard to that relationship with God. You're either a child of the kingdom of God for you are a child of wrath, and as it says there in verse 6, sons of disobedience. Number three, the way our relationship matters to God has an impact on the temporal and the eternal implications of our lives. In other words, the temporal part of our life is the time that we spend here. It's the here and now. It's the human flourishing that I was Speaking of, if we go against God and all of his commands and his precepts on how to live, we're going to suffer the consequences of that. But if we live for God in this place, God says we'll be blessed. Even in the difficulties of this place, even in cancer and car wrecks and the dangers and toils and the snares, all of it, that we'll still be blessed. It says in Romans 8, 28, it's my brother's favorite verse, right? That for all those who are called according to, who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work to the good for them. All things. That's human flourishing. You'll get the job that you need when you need it, right? It'll happen. The things that need to happen will happen. The things that God is working in your life will come to fruition. Oh, it may seem like you're on a downstretch for a while. Liz and I prayed for four and a half years before God moved us to New Jersey. We were beginning to think we'd been led in the wrong direction. But then he opened all the doors and we've experienced his good hand of provision since then. So it happens now in human flourishing, but ultimately it will happen uh, in eternity in bliss unspeakable. 
That's the two choices. Bliss unspeakable or fire unquenchable. Bliss unspeakable or fire unquenchable. And the world does not understand these truths because they have no fear of God. They have no wisdom. They have no wisdom for living. The world doesn't care about, number one, about a relationship with God because they don't know who God is. And the world doesn't know about, number two, really, they don't understand that they're in either in one of two camps. They're either a child of the kingdom or a son of disobedience. And the world just doesn't understand. I'm convinced of number three, that the human flourishing that comes from following God's precepts and his rules. Why don't the world understand this? Well, it's the same reason, beloved, we didn't understand. Because they're deceived, deceived as it says in verse 6. Do you see it there? They're deceived with empty words or vain repetition. They have no fear of God. They have no wisdom. Thus, they have no ability to discern truth. They have no fear of God. They have no wisdom. Thus, they have no ability to discern truth. Turn with me, if you will. Keep your finger in Ephesians. And go back to Psalms chapter 2. Psalms chapter 2. See if this passage doesn't begin to describe the world that we experience. It describes what Paul's talking about. It describes why they're deceived, uh, why the deceived act like they're deceived, why the deceived act like the world we see around us. You see it there in chapter 2, verses, just the first few verses. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, let's cast away their cords from us. They don't want anything to do with God. They don't want anything to do with following his rules and his statutes. They want those cords cast off of them. They don't want any restraint on what they want to do. They want to be their own God. And that's why, that's why the world looks like it does. Because they've taken off on their own. They don't see wisdom in understanding who God is. They don't see wisdom in knowing the statutes and commands or fearing of the Lord. They just fight against God. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Paul Washer says of this passage that if all the demons of hell were brought up and all the peoples that stood against God and every demon and every bad spirit and every dark place and every dark thing came against the throne of Jesus Christ that it would be as if a gnat was banging his head continually against a piece of granite the size of this world. You know what happens in heaven when that takes place? Not the same thing that happens in largely in evangelicalism. Look back to Psalms 2, verse 4. He who sits in heaven laughs <laughs> yeah. The Lord holds them in derision because he's going to speak to them in his wrath and terrify him in his fury. Because he has set his king on Zion, his holy hill, and that king is Jesus, and Jesus died so that he could rule the nations and that his inheritance would be the ends of the earth and that he would rule them with a rod of iron and break them into pieces like the potter's vessel. Do you see what that says there? 
Verse 10 says, Therefore, because of this, kings, you be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Why does the world act in such a way? Because man believes and loves his own knowledge and glories and revels in his own wisdom above God's wisdom. Lojoin said this, modern man glories above everything else in what he calls his knowledge, his great learning, his great understanding. He believes he understands life. He believes he has a true understanding of life and how it's supposed to work, but yet he is deceived by empty, vain repetition by the most subtle serpents. That subtle serpent we first come into contact, I talked about him last week as the dragon that must be slain. It's the same subtle serpent, more subtle than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, had come to Eve, and he came there not to give her something of wisdom, but to beguile her. That word beguiled is very important. He wanted to rob her life from him, from her, and he wanted to rob life from all mankind and therefore to rob glory from God. And how does that work today? Many Christians who claim to be Christians don't understand the subtlety of this beast, and this is what I want to warn you with this morning. Not to make you fear, but to make you fear enough to fear the Lord and to respect him, to respect his word, and to go after the discernment and wisdom that's found in the word of God. Let me tell you how subtle the serpent is. But let me bring it out of the garden. Who He used a piece of fruit there, right? He used that tree. And he said, it's, it's desired to make one wise. Surely God did not say not to eat of that tree. Let me put this in modern culture. The word of God is simple. It's straightforward. It says in the Ten Commandments, thou shall not kill. The man says, thou shall not kill unless it's in the case of rape or incest. This is man's understanding, not God's. Man's not concerned about the mind, will, character, and glory of God. And he can make a law that says it's not being compassionate to the mother while they murder the child. Human flourishing in this situation is obliterated. Should we make an exception for rape and incest? Should we murder the child whenever that takes place? Thou shall not kill. God's word is clear. It's instant, but the subtle message of the serpent begs at your heart. Oh, how can you make that young girl deliver that baby and bring it to term? It's the subtlety of the serpent, beloved. There's a lot of Christians today that stand up and say, murder the child. There's a lot of politicians today that say it's humane to have a 14-week ban on abortions. They look at us and they tell us, that's better than you've ever had. And while it's written as a law that stops all abortion after 14 weeks, it's also written as permission to kill all of them that are younger in the womb. That's the subtlety of the serpent. The serpent says, 
And man is deceived by this. You see this in largely in evangelical Christianity that little boys can now be little girls. And man is deceived by this argument. How can we deny them something they feel so deeply about on the inside? Yet science tells us that every cell in the human body either has an XX or an XY stamp on it. You cannot deny the truth of who God is and what he's done unless you are deceived. It's subtle. This is why war and strife and drug addiction and lawlessness exist because man has no wisdom or discernment regarding his conduct before a holy God. Man refuses largely to call sin, sin. In our intellectual age, man says he no longer needs God. He's going to detach from God. Listen, that is just superstition. Our forefathers needed it because they didn't have the scientific bravada that we had. They had no industrial revolution yet. They didn't have any enlightenment period. And now we're smart. We don't need these things anymore because we can fix all of our needs. We have the we have, what's it say, Malik? We have the technology, right? <laughs> Yet with all this progress, drug addiction, man, go downtown Philly one time. Suicide, homelessness, murder, crime, poverty, all of it's on the rise. All of it, and man has no answer for it. We live in a scientific and a therapeutic age and science and therapy say it's not sin. It's just a disease. They need therapy. A man is not a drunkard because of his sin. No, it runs in the family. It may very well be hereditary. He's predisposed. Perhaps it's not even his own fault for he can't help himself. See how we justify sin and the nuances of it as a disease? Then we prescribe handfuls of psychotropic medicines because man in his knowledge and his scientific prowess believes this is the way. This is the way to fix people. This is because it's not sin. It's about disease. It's about therapy. But the conditions never get better. They just worsen. The pills aren't working. The cure is not efficacious. Man is sick with sin, and the only remedy and the only cure for sin is ever going to be is Christ. That's the only cure for sin. So how do we defeat deception? How do we escape the wrath of God and flourish? How do we gain wisdom? The answer is really simple to that. We look into that which God reveals to us, the law, the perfect law of God. There's a threefold use to the law. Uh, this is a, a little bit of a theological side trip here, but I want you to know those three uses of the law. And it's in the three uses of the law, I believe you begin to understand how you as a Christian can use the law to serve God and to serve what God has called you to do. And what I want you to see more than anything this morning is those who are not saved, those who are lost, have no regard for God's law. They want their own law. They're happy to set their own law. So the first purpose of the law is to be a mirror, if you will. And this is, again, when I held up our bulletin I said our liturgy is this it's because our liturgy mirrors this when we look at who God is and we rightly understand in his law we're understanding his character traits we're understanding his love his mercy we're understanding his judgment when he says thou shalt not kill we're beginning to understand when we look into that perfect law that God is just and that every murder will be answered to on judgment day amen 
that mirror can draw people closer or can push people away that want their own law. The second purpose for the law is to restrain evil. The law in and of itself cannot change human hearts. It can, however, serve to protect the righteous from the unjust. John Calvin says this, by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment that we get from Scripture to curb those who, unless they're forced, have no regard or recititude for justice. So the law allows for a limited measure of justice on this earth until the last judgment is realized. And then the third purpose of the law is to reveal God being pleased with us who are born again. The born again children of God, the law enlightens us as to what is pleasing to our Father whom we seek to serve. You see, when we were lost, we went against God's law. We were condemned. We were out of the kingdom of light. We were in the kingdom of darkness. We were sons of disobedience and not saints. We didn't want to do God's law. We rejected God's law. We were just like our forefather Adam in that we did not want to follow God's law. We want what we wanted. We wanted to get the fruit from that tree because it did have something that we desired. We wanted that. And the law was not righteous to us. It was a burden to us. But to the child of God, the law enlightens us to what is pleasing to the Father whom we seek to serve. The Christian delights in the law as God himself delights in it. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the true believer wants to keep the commandments of God. This is the highest function of the law, to serve as an instrument for the people of God to give him honor and glory. And it's by studying and meditating on the law of God we attend the school of righteousness. We learn what pleases God and we learn what offends God. We learn wisdom because we learn to fear God. So let's just turn a few pages as we come to a close. Let's go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10. It's because I love to hear the pages in the Bible turning as you guys start to do that. And it gives me time to be with them. Romans chapter 10. Let's turn some pages. Bring this to an end. Bring this to a close. Let's, let's bring together what it means to be wise, to fear God, and then to live that out. Because that's what your pastor wants for you. Listen, this is what Paul wanted for his kindred. Romans chapter 10. Just begin in verse 1. Only four verses here. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And, you know, and saved is a process. Right? You are regenerated and then God begins to save you until that day you stand before the God who has saved you. Now, not that you're any less saved at any one point, but you are being more sanctified until the day that you're glorified when you're perfectly sanctified before the Lord Jesus Christ. But each day that you live here, you're becoming those saints. It's a process that can't be stopped. Paul says, my heart's desire is that my own home people would become this way, that they may be saved. Beloved, that's your pastor's desire for you, is that once you're regenerated, once you've received the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you continue to grow in that. Because as you grow, it builds wisdom and fear of the Lord. And as you grow, it makes your life a part of human flourishing here. You've already got your spot assured there. It's the time you have left here. It's why I tell every young man, 
have five children. And their wives always go, yeah, that's exactly what we want. Have five children. Have five children. If you want to be king of your own domain, have five, maybe seven children if you really feel like you're going to do something. And then each one of your five children have five more children. That's your grandchildren, and each one of your grandchildren have five children. That's your great-grandchildren. If you've been doing the math as I go along, that's 125 kids, but each one of those kids is going to need a spouse. That's 250 people that look back at you and go, great-grandpa taught me how to love life and love Jesus. Boy, he passed along some wisdom to me. Huh. What a great legacy. That's what God intends for you. Be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Human flourishing. Sin gets in the way. And we need mulligans. But as soon as we turn from our sin and turn towards the Lord Jesus Christ, the human flourishing begins. Understand? My heart's desire, Paul says, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ, listen, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That is that Christ, as it says in Matthew 5, 17, says to us, I did not, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Christ fulfills that law for us. When we are in Christ, God's law is fulfilled and we are saved and we have fulfilled all the law. We take up the blessings to him. We get imputed to us his righteousness, beloved. That's why you're becoming saints because Jesus lived a perfect life. You're not going to. But as you look into the perfect law of God and live your life here and push away sin and push away the deceit of the enemy, you grow in wisdom and you glorify God in that wisdom. Beloved, here is wisdom. It's in the law for it tells us who God is and what God expects of man. And it tells us the condition of man as condemned before God and points us to Christ. Galatians says the law is a tutor. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. If the world, listen to me, if the world could just abide in God's law today, if every person would, we'd live in paradise. You understand that? Oh, I'm not going to do that because it, I, thou shall not murder. God says thou shall not murder. Thou shall not covet. I'm not going to look at my wife's or my, my friend's wife that way. Thou shall not covet. I'm not going to look at his car that way. We would live in paradise here on earth if everybody could follow God's law, but they can't because of sin. They need Jesus Christ. God's law then causes human flourishing. Following it in Christ is eternal, eternal bliss. God's law causes human flourishing. Following it in Christ is eternal, eternal bliss. Turn with me. Let's just go just one more time to the book of Psalms, 119th chapter. Just a few more verses. Psalms 119. Let's look at verses 104 and 105. Because it's in this law, we get the wisdom we desire. 
Psalms 119, 104, and 105. Don't, don't close it after that. We're going to do just a little more. The psalmist writes, David writes, through your precepts I get understanding. That is, through your law, through your commands. Through your statutes, commands, and precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Because I've received understanding from your law, I know which way to hate. Because I've received understanding from your law, I understand what causes my human flourishing. Because your, do you see it in verse 105 there? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. I can see my way through this world because of your law and your word. Now, mind you, it's not a it's not a full on light that shines on the whole world. It's just on your path there. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Same chapter, one nineteen. Go to verse eleven. This is what the law does for the saved. Verses 10 and 11. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. You see that? The word of the Lord, the law of the Lord is life to those in Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord, the law of the Lord is wisdom that keeps us away from deception. It gives us discernment. Turn to Psalms 19, verses 7 through 14. Psalm 19, 7 through 14. Just a few minutes. Psalm 19, beginning of verse 7. Do you see the difference between man and the world today? Believing in vain repetitions, deceiving, being deceived by the subtle serpent. He would never say these things, but yet you and I, beloved, because the Lord's given us a law, a love for his law, it says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, it revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, it enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, it endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even fine gold and much of it, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. In your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. If you want to put away the words of deception from the great deceiver, learn the law of God. Hide it away in your heart. Get understanding through his precepts and his commands. Beloved, if there's, as I said earlier, if there's one prayer your pastor prays most for, it is that we learn together who God is, that we learn his law in such a way that it gives us human flourishing here in this place. I want your marriages to flourish because you know God's law. Because when Satan comes in and he wants to subtly deceive you, oh, we've grown apart. I just don't love her like I used to. 
That's, those things all seem reasonable, and those are things that the world around us is saying constantly. But it's not true. Flourishing in manhood and womanhood. Oh, if there's one thing that our society and our culture needs, it is good, positive role models of what men and godly men and women are supposed to be. Flourishing in your children's lives, because I know that if you flourish, Dad, if you're in the home and you're flourishing and you understand the law of God and you're not being taken and moved in different directions, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by every deceiving word, if you're not being deceived by the deceptor, if you're defeating deception, your wife will feel more comfortable and your children will grow up in a home that calls you blessed. I want you to flourish in your professional lives because of this. Flourish in this church and this community. Beloved, we need that. We need our church and our community flourishing because it has wisdom and it's put away deception. My final admonition is simple. Be reconciled to God and flourish through the wisdom that he gives in his law. Be reconciled to God and flourish by the wisdom he gives us in his law. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, I am thankful for your word. I'm thankful for your law. It reveals who you are. And because of it, we can know truth. We can know what is on your mind. What is your mind? What is your will? What is your character? And what glorifies you? And we can live with those precepts and commandments so that we can please you in the work of Christ. Thank you for the hope we have in that, Father. Thank you for the encouragement we get that we can believe every promise, that we can stand strong in this place against the deception, and we can say with all clarity and with all authority that this is from Satan because we understand and have wisdom from your law. Oh, Father, make us a church who understands who you are that has wisdom and authority from your law. Make us men and husbands that understand. Make us women and mothers who understand. Make us children, Father, that understand your wisdom and your law. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, if our men who are going to help serve the